and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We're coming back at you here for the first time in the month of March. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this fine program, and glad that all you cool cats and uh, uh, cool kittens as well can join us once again on this program. We're all back together, as we should be. Indeed. And you said we... And you also worked in a very obtuse Tiger King reference in there, so. <laughs> you know, I'm looking that, for the timely references. Yes, of course. Um, but yes, this week I'm Dennis, the man who can both wholeheartedly recommend and also warn heartily of playing The Witness. Now, this is not Death Stranding, so what, what, what is this game you've been cheating on Death Stranding with? Well, it's a game that I technically started playing about four years ago. <laughs> And, you know, one of the many games that I kind of put down, because I'll be real with you, it's a very, very difficult game, but I picked it back up for whatever reason, and I'm actually two trophies away from platinuming it now. Wow. So I'm at the very, for I think, I think, I haven't looked anything up. Like, I haven't used any guides or anything on the game, which is also very satisfying, but I think I'm at the very end of the game. So I can say it's maybe one of the best games I've ever played and also maybe um, one of the most frustrating games I've ever played. Now, for those out there who might not be familiar with this title of The Witness, uh, it's a smaller title that uh, perhaps has not come across their radar yet. What uh, what can you tell them about that as a uh, as a descriptor to perhaps uh, pique, uh, pique their interest or deter them away from this title? Well, it's it's a puzzle game first and foremost, um, and the way that the like it tells you nothing. You're dropped in with no context. You have to figure everything else. You have to figure everything out yourself. Like, you don't get any sort of um, tutorials. You don't get any sort of uh, prompts showing you where you should be going. You don't get anything flashing on the screen. It's literally you're dropped in. You have to even figure out the mechanics for yourself. Um, you know, there's they're very simple mechanics, but once you have that figured out, then, you know, it, it starts small. Like, it, it at least kind of, like... Everything for you to figure out how to play the game is in front of you, which I do appreciate. And I think that that was sort of like a big philosophical um, point that the person who created the game, Jonathan Blow, who had previously um, was the creator of the game Braid, was basically trying to get across of, you know, he he didn't like when games had all these weird forced epiphany moments where like – you, you, like, they, the way that they design it is that, like, oh, now that they've shown me how this thing works, now I can go back and do this other thing. It's like, no, that's, that's a fake epiphany. That's not real. That's not a real epiphany. Whereas this game, the entire world is open right from the start, but you have to kind of, like, you're going to be faced with puzzles that you're like, I don't understand at all what this means. What the hell are these symbols? What's this thing? What does this mean? And it basically encourages you to walk away to go do something else elsewhere in the game to figure out more stuff, to get more context, to figure out actually how am I supposed to approach this problem? Are there other clues somewhere else? Like, will it teach me some mechanics using an easier puzzle? And it always does. It always does. Like, it might not be super apparent 
when it happens or when it's happening or how you'll use the information, but it always happens. And it's, it's more, it treats you more like you're genuinely intelligent and it trusts you to figure things out on your own rather than holding your hand as it forces you to figure things out. Which is a stark contrast to the approach that many developers and many studios have with uh, games these days. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really assume any intelligence on a gamer's part, which is really unfortunate, but you know, it, uh, yeah. And I, I think the, the creator was really kind of like getting sick and tired of that. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting game. Uh, but again, it's very unclear with like what is actually happening. I mean, I'm towards the end of the game and I've sort of vaguely pieced together my own version of the story. I don't know if my story is close to what the actual story was, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And also like there, it's throughout the game are like little things hidden throughout this like throughout the land, like there'll, there'll be little like audio play, like recordings that you can uncover that are basically just like little excerpts from philosophy essays and like treatises on, you know, spirituality and stuff like that as well. Like not that the game is a religious game. It's just sort of like all these pieces that basically paint a very similar picture of all the things that I was talking about as well, which is also kind of weird and cool that it's basically like, hey, it, the, the whole point of this isn't to just beat the game. It's to kind of like learn some stuff along the way and like figure out, you know, a greater picture. And I don't know. It, it's, it might be a little preachy, but it's also pretty interesting so far. So perhaps by next week, I'll have beaten the last couple of puzzles that I have to beat, but it's also very interesting. When you first start playing the game, you know, all of the early puzzles in all the early areas are very easy, but once you get into what they call the end game area, that easiness goes away. And it's very like your brain literally like it, you get very brain fatigued <laughs> and you actually have to stop playing <laughs> before you go. No, this is, this is too much. I've, I've reached all I can for now. I'm going to come back to this later with a fresh brain and see if I can figure this out then. And it encourages that, which is also very bizarre and unvideo game like, I find. Yes, encouraging you to actually put down and walk away from this game. Yeah. But doing that works. It's surprising. Now, about how much time do you think you've uh, sunk into this game so far? I don't know. Like, I think cumulatively it's, it might be close to, it might be close to a hundred hours. There's no timer. I'm not entirely sure. There being no a lack of timer is an interesting uh, uh, point as well. So, really, to uh, almost suspend the player and uh, a a lot of the the standard gaming conventions. Yeah, because I I recall oh god several years ago back in the before time when getting together with other humans was allowed and possible uh, that you actually showed me off some of this game. Now I don't know how early into the title you were, how far into the title you were, but it's, 
it seemed to take a very sparse and minimum like minimalist approach to things too. Like there's no heads up display. There's no, you know, map per se of things. It's just a, a real big sandbox, if you will, with puzzles sprinkled all throughout. Yeah. I think that's a very fair assessment, a fair way to put it. Um, fair and accurate, I'd say. Thank you. That's what I strive for. Yes. Fairness and accuracy. The, uh, the, the two, Guiding principles of Mike the Legend's life. <laughs> Every morning I wake up and uh, take a uh, solemn vow to myself that uh, that that day I'm going to be both fair and accurate as much as I can. Yes. And it's led me to this point, and uh, I hope it's come across in everything I've done in all my years on this planet. <laughs> yes, um, is the answer I'm hoping that you are willing to hear to that, but, uh, but yes... It's it's a very strange game that I can basically say, like, I can wholeheartedly recommend it, but I understand that it will be a frustrating experience, so I wouldn't hold it against anyone if they don't want to play it, because it really does – it. it's the opposite assumption that video games make these days, where video games generally, I find, assume you're stupid and then force you to come up to speed with a bunch of, like, ham-fisted – tutorials and stuff that just kind of like really force you to understand maybe a little bit more complicated game mechanics or puzzle rules or something like that. But this game doesn't hold your hand at all. And it really assumes you're intelligent and it assumes that you, you are an inquisitive person and it assumes all these other different things. So it's the opposite approach. So if you're not used to that, like I like it's, this isn't meant as me throwing shade on anyone or anything like that, but it's, it's, it's different and it's a more mentally rewarding experience, I think, than, you know, the average, you know, like there's lots of games that are like, you know, rewarding to beat and stuff because they're, you know, feats of, uh, you know, like hand-eye coordination and whatnot, but there's not really any sort of any of that at play in this game. Like there's not really any rush to anything, which is very nice. It's just kind of like do this at your own pace and we're not going to give you any hints, but whenever you solve it, great. Yes. It's not really going for a visceral experience. Yeah. Now, as I recall too, from the, uh, the snippet that I saw many moons ago, uh, when you were first showing it to me, the art style is uh, very unique. It's a very lush and very saturated color palette in this game. Yeah, like, I don't know how much of that is to do with the fact that they had, like, they made their own game engine and everything for the game, but it's very interesting. Like, you noted that it seemed vaguely cel-shaded to you, and I think, like, it's because, from what I think I've noticed, there's not really textures in the game. There's, they actually, like, build all the different things out using, like, colors and panels and stuff that you know, the things would be composed of. So like, instead of making a ground texture, you actually get all the different blades of grass. Instead of having like tree with leaves for a texture, you actually have like all the individual leaves and like, you know, a few different striking colors of brown just going up through like a tree trunk or whatnot, things like that. Like instead of seeing like sand, you actually see a brown ground and then you see a few like little like dunes, this kind of drawn on here and there, or, you know, instead of seeing like a rocky, like rocks and stuff going up to a mountain, you actually see physical rocks kind of placed up 
a path and, you know, all the different things kind of just drawn on as like a layer on top. It, it doesn't seem like it's textured in like a traditional 3D game sense, um, if that makes any sense. I'm getting it. It's, uh, it's a lot, it's, it's just part of the, the different approach that, uh, Jonathan Blowen, I guess, whomever else worked on him with this game took in creating the witness, you know, trying to, I don't know if I, if breaking conventions is the, uh, proper term, if they were active and conscious in trying to break gaming norms and gaming conventions, but basically go an entirely different path with things. Yeah. And lo and behold, the witness was born and, uh, uh, you at least, it sounds like are perhaps close to beating it and, uh, look forward to hearing about that progress in the weeks ahead as, uh, this is the game that you've been cheating on Death Stranding with. Yeah. And then once this is out of the way, obviously you'll pick back up Death Stranding or just find something else that you put down five years ago and <laughs> play a bit more through that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll probably either be Death Stranding or Cyberpunk or something, but we'll see. Again, too many options. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the bounty, it's it's the golden age slash platinum age of uh, content that we live in, but, uh, and that's just in the digital medium. And uh, hell, if you listened to this program last time, you heard us uh, speak uh, about the fact that in the streaming realm, there's so many options as well. But uh, also in the in the published word, there's a, a bounty of options for your eyeballs and your purchasing dollars as well. And we are now going to speak about two ludicrous leadoffs that take us to the uh, the antithesis of the video game realm. We're going into the realm of books for a moment because we have two ridiculous stories to come from there uh, about uh, crazy... Uh, Special editions, if you will, that are, uh, uh, have been announced with releases pending that are just doing different things to try and get your attention and try and stand out as compared to the rest of their, uh, published counterparts because there's a lot of books available these days. Oh yeah. I mean, like, well, I think that just as time goes on, if there is a form of medium or, or uh, if there is a form of media to be consumed, like, there's, it's not a growing shortage of forms of media. Like we have the opposite problem, arguably in a impossible to track scale now, you know, as, as more and more people have tools to be able to create new forms of media themselves without maybe any sort of, you know, um, impediments like there might've been previously, like as Home recording software proliferates. More people can make albums. As home video editing software proliferates, more people can make their own movies at home. As, you know, more um, on-demand printing capabilities happen, like more and more people can make their own, you know, books and whatnot. Now, we're not talking about anything done in a DIY fashion here, but just for context, yeah, there's plenty of books and stuff vying for your attention. So you, you basically, when you're picking any sort of medium now, you kind of have to be careful that, you know, it's going to be what you want because, you know, are you willing to sink, you know, a few weeks into that thing that you're going to be buying because 2000 other things are going to come out in the next two weeks and you got to be careful. 
It's true. And uh, also, if you're the publisher of these these books, these uh, spoken word or, you know, these materials, these pieces of media, like how do you stand out compared to the other ones available in the store online, etc., etc.? Yeah, you got to do something different. And in Japan, something uh, is uh, something certainly different is being done by the uh, Kodansha Corporation. They are publishers of the Attack on Titan manga, and they are releasing special editions uh, that are compilations of first and second installments in the Attack on Titan manga, which, I mean, there's a lot of Attack, and T- Attack on Titan volumes to be had, considering the manga started publishing in, I think, 2009, that uh, there, there's just a lot of content, yeah. which, you, which you might not know if you've only been watching the anime on Netflix. Or yeah, whatever exactly. other means. So it's a manga series, been around for a dozen years, a lot of content to go from and a lot of content to go by. So the Kodansha Corporation is releasing, as I said, compilations of the first and second volumes, and they're making them supersized, I guess, playing off the theme of Titans and just the enormity of the Titans, that these two installments, these two, uh, or this compilation of the first and second installments of the Attack on Titan manga, 96 pages, which... That's really not that many pages, but the pages are supersized to the point that these books are three feet high and they come in weighing 30 pounds. <laughs> yeah. And they have an equally Titan sized price for them. Uh, each of the, I guess it's going to cost 150,000 yen, which roughly translates to 1400 US dollars. Be, uh, that's before taxes and shipping. Yeah. So that's a whole lot of these Titan-sized compilations going on. Uh, you know, pretty respectable, 30 pounds, $1,400 price point. That's certainly nothing to sneeze at. Those are some pretty respectable dimensions. But let's move on to our second, uh, I guess, the 1B of these uh, ridiculous publishing stories this week. Because there is a 1B to that. There's a more ridiculous uh, special edition being published later this year. That, uh, I think is, well, I don't think, I know, according to the press release, is weightier than that Attack on Titan manga. Yeah, so, the Wu-Tang Clan, um, is not a group who is, you know, a stranger to what you could say is a limited edition version of things. Like, years ago, they released, I believe it was Once Upon a Time in Brooklyn? Uh, once no. upon a time in Shaolin. Oh, in Shaolin, yes. Um, which was, you know, supposed to be one of their new albums, but they only released it in one, they only released one copy of it. And that ended up going to the infamous Pharma Bro, Martin Shkreli, you know, to the chagrin of many, but you know, he, he won the bidding war and got his copy of the album. And there's only one copy of that album in existence. So like super exclusive. Um, yeah, very, very limited edition. I'm sure there were some rules surrounding, you know, him purchasing it in that, you know, he can't actually, you know, disseminate it or sell it or anything. <laughs> like, I, I think there's probably some sort of rule where only ever one can exist. So fine. But yeah, that was the first thing I recall hearing about how crazy the Wu-Tang Clan is in terms of like, outrageous ludicrous like like limited editions for things this is the next edition in that 
or the, the next instance of them doing something like that, they are releasing a limited edition photography book, which is going to be titled Wu-Tang Clan Legacy. Uh, again, similar to um, any other coffee table book. It's a large format book. Um, if you've ever seen a coffee table photography book before, like these things are, you know, maybe not attack on Titan sized, <laughs> but they're pretty big. They can be, uh, they could be, you know, a couple feet wide by a couple feet tall if they're a very big book, but like, you know, more than the foot in either direction, I would say in either dimension, usually. Uh, certainly um, it's uh, they're much, they're certainly much larger than your standard novel size. Yeah. So this book is going to be 300 pages of images and, um, that in of itself is not the impressive or crazy part here. The the first part of this that's going to be crazy is that it's going to be encased in a 400-pound sculpted chamber. So the book exists inside a chamber. And now if you know the Wu-Tang Clan at all, you'll know what the next part is coming up. You're going to, you're going to hear the word chamber and you're going to go, wait, the first album was, you know, 36 chambers, wasn't it? And it was like, yes. So... The second part of this, which is maybe the arguably the super crazy part, is that according to the book's official website, there's only ever going to be 36 of these in existence. So they're releasing 36 copies of these books that each are going to be encased in a 400-pound sculpted chamber. So there can only ever be 36 chambers in the world. I I have to give it to the Wu-Tang Clan. They... Are ridiculous. Yeah, and there's a certain, I mean, I'm not, like, just to preface this, I'm not a big fan of, you know, crazy conceptual art. A lot of it, I frankly don't get. You know, like, a lot of it just kind of seems like, you know, that's not, doesn't seem like art to me, seems weirdly performative. But to this, like, on occasion, something like, you know, some kind of art piece will come along and I look at it and go, oh, that's pretty ridiculous. I can appreciate that. This to me feels way up there <laughs> among those types of art pieces. And I can uh, certainly understand that. The uh, uh, the sculpted chamber that this comes in that weighs 400 pounds, it... It's a, uh, it's a sculpture. Uh, the, the Wu-Tang Clan in announcing this just released a short 30 second video that actually shows off what this sculpture piece will look like. And it almost looks like, a, a just a really heavy version of like an award or something. It's, uh, the book is sitting atop a, a pedestal and encased in a globe. The globe opens up with, of course, the Wu-Tang W on the front of it. Uh, and the globe opens up, and that's where your 300-page picture book is housed. So, I mean, not entirely crazy. Perhaps a simple design, perhaps out of necessity to house the book and whatnot. But still, it's 400 pounds, so it's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, and each of these 36 editions, they will come signed, they will come dated, they will come numbered, they will come with their own certificate of authenticity. No price point, however, has been announced for what these Wu-Tang legacy books are actually going to run for. And I feel like that's an important detail that's missing. Yeah. I mean, out of, you know, just wild curiosity, I signed up to the, the, um, the email list that will notify me when these are available for purchase. I'm, I'm either expecting something hilariously cheap and it will sell out really fast or, Insanely expensive and maybe less likely to sell out super fast. 
The the number I have rattling around in my head kind of as a baseline is something like $10,000. I would say I could see that being far more than that actually. If if the limited if the super limited edition of their album ended up selling for what was it? Something like $10 million or something like that? Uh, it was only like 2 million. Okay, well only like 2 million for an album like I could see this being maybe closer to $100,000. Yeah, true, actually. So, uh, let me put it this way, uh, to all the listeners and, and y'all will understand. If, uh, you are a person where you have to ask a- about the price and are concerned about the price, the price of this, then this is not for you. Yeah. Exactly. In the same way, if you go to like a high end, you know, uh, uh, car dealership or, or, you know, fashion retailer or whatnot, and there's no prices on things, then it's not for you. Yep. That's, that's the sim- simple, uh, simple way to put it. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, quote here from the press, in the press release of, uh, that's attributed to John Mook Gibbons, who's the CEO of Wu-Tang Clan Management, says, quote, from conception to the present day, this is the story of the undisputed greatest hip-hop group of all time being unveiled through rare and never before seen photos. End quote. So, I mean, it's a 300-page book. This, that's going to be pretty weighty on its own. Then they have to build, you know, a ridiculous sculpture to house it in for added ridiculousness. So this is, uh, yeah, um, shipping is going to be a hell of a thing on this item, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, 400 pounds is, um, well, not, not sure if you're aware of how shipping generally works, but... uh the more heavy things are, the more money they cost to ship, <laughs> generally. <laughs> so there will be a team of two stout men delivering these items worldwide. <laughs> yes. Decked out in Wu-Tang Clan shirts and in their own Wu-Tang Clan branded UPS vehicles. Yes, it's Wu-P-S. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played indeed. So, uh, if you also want to get in on the, uh, pre-order list or at least get an email notification, uh, for your own posterity or perhaps you just have way too much money and do not care and have to have this Wu-Tang Clan photo book in your collection, 400 pound statue and all, uh, we link to, uh, the official page for it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. But that all being said, we have one more ludicrous lead off. This one actually video game related and ties into a, a theme we've seen over the past number of years of people trying to become YouTube famous, or at least social media famous, by doing uh, ridiculous things in video games, more specifically using non-conventional items as controllers to control a video game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we actually saw this particular item in use by someone previously on a stream when they were trying to set a some sort of any percent record on, I think it was one of the Donkey Kong Country games, like maybe it was Banana Blast or something like that? Uh, maybe. I do recall someone rigging up uh, this particular non-conventional item and using it as a, uh, a way to show th- that, yes, it could work when they were controlling Overwatch. Ah, yes. That was what it was. Yes. I, I believe the user was a twerking Yoshi. Yeah, that sounds correct. Um, but if you're calling what those, uh, the, that 
you know, story was from uh, the non-conventional control scheme used for Overwatch from a couple years ago. Uh, it was a banana and a twerking Yoshi who, uh, if I'm going off the top of my head here, but I believe they were the individual who rigged up this very unique con- control scheme to show that, yes, you could play Overwatch with bananas and I'm sure made some really tasty banana bread after because those bananas would have been destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> but we've seen other, you know, non-conventional objects used. I mean, uh, drum controllers used uh, for many different things uh, coming out of the rock band Guitar Hero Heyday, as well as plastic instruments. But a new patent filing was discovered recently that had been filed with the U.S. Uh, Trade and Patent Office by Sony, and it's for technology slash a concept of turning non-conventional controller items into controlling objects that can be used to control a video game that's being played right then and there in that moment. And this is all kind of being done through the use of a camera. You do not have to be an electrical engineer, thank God, to worry about all this, to figure out how to do all the wiring, your capacitors, your your leads, whatever. You don't have to worry about that because anytime you're doing some sort of non-conventional controller scheme, yeah, you need some electrical knowledge to wire it all up. Yeah. Thankfully, th- thankfully, that will not be the case here, and instead will be done with the use of a camera, and according to Sony's patent here, uh, it would allow, quote, uh, any, quote, non-luminous passive object being held by, held by the user uh, to be used as a controller. And according to this concept that's been filed for patent, uh, objects would be scanned with a camera, which would, and that camera would then track items based on pixels, contours, and colors, uh, and then a game could be trained to recognize objects as controllers or tell users and suggest to users which household items they could use as a controller. And in the patent application, they give some ridiculous examples of what they're talking about to kind of convey the idea. Yeah. So in the patent application, they uh, show images of a user uh, using a banana or an orange uh, as a controller for this method of controlling a video game. And not only that, then the controllers, according to the images in this patent filing, also have buttons mapped over top them, basically as virtual overlay overlays done by the camera that the user is then also hitting virtually and using to control the game as well. So in the example of like uh the game used, it could be like, you know, a button for your accelerator, a button for your brake if they're using a racing game and those buttons could be mapped to opposite ends of your banana. Yeah. And yeah, it's it is kind of funny because it's a PlayStation patent. One of the buttons is an X and one of the buttons is a triangle. On the, on the, like, just outlined in, like, kind of a funny little, like, just a dot outline kind of fashion on a banana held between two cartoony hands. So, uh, we'll see where this goes. I mean, the, the application patent filing also suggests that two objects could be used at the same time. So if you were in some kind of shooting game, you could use two bananas at the same time and just feel like the king of the world and like you've really hit a high point with your life. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then if the object goes outside the camera's view, then it uh, would pause the game and also really confuse the camera and the, and the PlayStation console as to what the hell. Like, I saw the banana and the banana's gone. What's going on? 
Well, it's been eaten. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is a ridiculous piece of technology. No word if this is ever going to actually be something that comes to real life fruition, or this is just a concept that some kind of engineer had in a Sony department and higher ups decided, yeah, you know what? We'll, we'll file a patent anyway, just to have it in our back pocket. Well, I mean, they used a silly example in the patent, but I could see where this could potentially actually get into some muddy, weird gray area stuff with augmented reality. Um, I guess the idea here being that basically, from what I understand, they just basically want to be able to tell where your thumbs are pressing on a thing and register those spots as buttons and also like geospatially use your position for other purposes. Could this actually then turn into them basically getting lawsuit happy anytime anyone implements something similar to this in augmented reality. Hmm. So it could be maybe a far reaching or maybe a patent that's reaching a little bit too far as well, just to kind of break this down in further, you know, with, with some extra concerns added here, like, like the whole point of augmented reality is to be able to map stuff from software into a live photograph or a live video feed of what's actually coming from a camera. So like if part of that live video feed is projecting a button somewhere and then your hand walking over, like reaching over to like push it, is that going to be, you know, something that Sony's trying to patent that type of interaction even, or they, are they like, you know, projecting, Oh, there's going to be two buttons on a banana. So you can't, no one else can do that because we've patented that idea. That's an interesting uh, uh, point you raise because this is seemingly a patent filing for the concept and an idea rather than a specific piece of technology itself. Yeah, which gets a little dangerous in my head. And this is uh, kind of what we've seen crop up in more recent years with uh, patent trolls. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tricky. Uh, now, this is a patent that has been filed. It hasn't necessarily been approved yet, uh, though it is officially been filed with the uh, U.S. Uh, patent and Trade Office. Uh, we link to the official filing uh, page itself on our website, thearcadeshow.com. You can see the amusing images, laugh at it, and get a good chuckle for yourself. But, uh, yeah, this is going to uh, uh, be an interesting idea in how this works. Are there other companies that perhaps have had similar patent filings previously? Yeah, because I, mean, I can't imagine this. Good is, question. Can't imagine this is an entirely new idea or something that would be wholly unique to Sony. No, I mean, look at uh, Microsoft and their use of the Hololens over the past number of years. In theory, they would have some sort of means to, you know, bring real-world objects into the virtual interaction with those headsets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, where this goes, I don't, I don't know, but. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting idea. If they just stick to it for PlayStation purposes, I can see the benefit of, and uh, benefit of this being, I should say, that you'd potentially lower the cost of entry point for people having to spend X amount of dollars on additional PlayStation controllers. Yeah, like if that's the harmless um, intention, that's fine. But I also can see this being a very dangerous precedent being set with 
oh, well, you know, we're, we're the ones who own basically the concept of augmented reality. And it's like, you can't own that. There's prior art. I would actually be very surprised if this holds up even in a court of law, since there is, you could argue prior art for something like something very similar to this already popping up. Like augmented reality is already a thing. And, you know, there's already ways to tell, especially with, you know, the LIDAR sensors and stuff in some of the upper end, like iPhones and stuff that are out there now, basically being able to tell spatially using light how far away things are and how, you know, big things are in relation to other things. <laughs> you know, there's basically nothing stopping augmented reality from ostensibly already handling this use case. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit kind of skeptical that this patent will even go through, but I will concede that it is a funny picture to just include like someone basically holding a banana as part of your patent photo. But like, it's not the best patent photo I've ever seen. <laughs> the best patent photo I've ever seen was a patent filed by Eddie Van Halen for a device to hold a guitar at a 90 degree angle to your belt, basically. And the photo is basically a ridiculous over-the-top cartoon drawing of him on stage with hair flying all over the place with his tongue sticking out, like playing the guitar like a piano. <laughs> Anyways, it, it if you look up like ridiculous Van Halen patent picture, it'll come up and it's it's fantastic. So, yeah, just a brief aside, but uh, yeah. So... Uh, I mean, this patent filing, obviously not as cool as the Eddie Van Halen patent filing, but, uh, amusing nonetheless. And where it goes from here, who the hell knows? Because again, companies, uh, big companies will be filing for patents pretty often and pretty frequently just so they can potentially get, uh, control of that idea or protect themselves for future use. But in theory, augmented reality has been around for many years at this point and the concept of, involving a real world object into the virtual interaction is not new. So we'll see where this goes. Yeah. But uh, moving on to some more meat and potatoes news of the week. Hey, did you hear the one about Nintendo possibly upgrading the model of the switch? I did. Cause that's an oldie, but a goodie that seems to crop up every three to four months, like some, yeah. other, or at least it feels like it crops up every three to four months. Uh, some other new report on, you know, anonymous uh, reporting or, you know, insider information on Nintendo planning to upgrade the switch or at least have a, a more higher end model of the switch. Uh, the news this week coming by way of Bloomberg, the financial reporting outlet that is Bloomberg. Uh, they say that apparently Nintendo is planning to reveal a new model of the Switch uh, that uh, apparently will be released in time for this holiday season and will include a 7-inch Samsung OLED display, OLED display, and will be able to output at 4K ultra-high definition when the Switch is in the dock. And yeah. Apparently that's the, uh, the, the main takeaways of this upgraded switch, uh, a larger touchscreen, uh, a seven inch display with 720p resolution on an OLED panel. Uh, apparently, uh, this isn't, uh, just a, a scuttlebutt. The Bloomberg report even goes further and gives actually some more detailed information saying that Nintendo has an initial monthly target of, uh, of producing under a million units and that these displays that Nintendo is getting from Samsung 
will be sent to assembly factories starting in July to ramp up production ahead of the Christmas shopping season. Yeah, so to try to obviously avoid any sort of like anything close to the debacle that's been happening with the PlayStation 5 and the uh, newest Xbox as well, with the crazy supply issues that those have been facing. Absolutely. So the uh, I think in no small part the the you know supply issues of the PlayStation Five and Microsoft Xbox uh, uh, Series X have been facing. Basically, they were ramping up production at the absolute wrong time when factories in China were shut down due to COVID. Yep. So how do you remedy that? You can't. Yeah, there's nothing you can do when your assembly factories are literally shut down and cannot operate. So those supply issues, they will be worked through as the the assembly factories in China have opened back up production, slowly starting to ramp up. And I can see this almost as a way of Nintendo maybe taking a defensive position, uh, anticipating that the place there will be more PlayStation 5s and more Xbox Series X units available for purchase come this holiday season. And at the same time, too, if you think of the timing of this, well, the Switch just passed its fourth birthday. Come the holiday season, it'll be more than four and a half years old, going on five years old, come 2022. That's usually around the time, if not kind of late, for when Nintendo does some kind of system refresh to their console of that day. Yeah. And they've so, done it for, like, I think every single one of their previous consoles, so this should come as no surprise to anyone. Absolutely. And uh, you might be thinking, oh, only a 7-inch, uh, you know, screen on the Switch unit itself with a 720p resolution? Like, that's, it's not that great. You're right, it's not. But I did read elsewhere that apparently Samsung has just a backlog of the, or not a backlog, but they have unused OLED screens just kind of kicking around, or at the very least, like, you know, unused orders for them. So Nintendo is probably getting these at a uh, discount price, or at least a much better price than, say, a couple years ago. And also, too, if it's outputting at 4K through the dock, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. And I did read comments made elsewhere, too. I think from writers on IGN that if Nintendo had gone with a, uh, you know, 1080 display on the Switch unit itself, that's just going to, you know, eat through more battery life. Well, yeah, exactly. So that's, I think they're they're striking a good balance here. And also, too, with a small enough screen, uh, would the difference between 720, like a 7-inch screen like this, is a difference between 720p and 1080 really that noticeable? Yes, it is. Oh, okay. It's quite noticeable. But, I mean, I mean, I, I think it's a thing of managed expectations. Like, we've kind of already come to expect the Switch as being maybe not the graphical powerhouse that the other systems are. So, for that purpose, I think it's, like, not really going to be that big of a deal breaker. But the 4K output on the TV or for to the TV is going to be, I think, the important part here. Because while, you know, you can put up with more on a mobile screen, like, you know, like, you know, there, there's more leeway there. There's less when you have a TV and you expect things to look a certain way. This is true. And uh, the Switch outputting at, I guess, only 1080 uh, through the dock mode. I mean, more and more TVs can handle and accept 4K, and this would potentially bring it in line with the, uh, uh, or closer to in line with the output of the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X units. Yeah. 
And just imagine how crazy Breath of the Wild would look in 4K. I mean, yeah, probably really good. So this is the the rumor du jour of a quote-unquote Switch Pro model. We'll see what it looks like. Um, you know, there is room in Nintendo's, uh, I guess, arsenal, their lineup of uh, Switch units for a higher-end model. They've got the Switch Lite, which retails for less than your average Switch. The base Switch model can still retail for its standard amount and then introduce a higher-end model for those who want the better graphics, the better screen and whatnot for a more premium price. Sure. Yeah. You've got uh, low, middle, and high all covered right there. So we shall see. Uh, Nintendo's president, uh, Shuntoro Furukawa, has been uh, being quoted in recent times as saying that they have uh, nothing to announce and will not be announcing a new model anytime soon. That has been their standard response. But at some point, we all know there will be a different form factor, a different version of the Switch. That's yeah. just a matter of time. And... I don't know. The timing seems to make a lot of sense to me as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's always good to get stuff out or get stuff ready for the holiday season. It does. And if uh, that is what Nintendo is using to kind of guard against uh, really increased or potentially increased sales due to increased supply of PlayStation 5s and Xbox Series Xs, sure, I, I can see that as making sense, but... Uh, we'll move on to something semi-Nintendo related. Uh, I think, was it last week or uh, week before we spoke about the fact that the Pokemon company is doing ridiculous things to mark the 25th anniversary of Pokemon as a franchise uh, with the first games coming out in Japan, I believe in the early part of uh, 1996, being the Pokemon red and green versions. Of course, in North America, we got red and blue, blah, blah, blah. Same games, whatever, different packaging, but at the time we spoke about uh, Nintendo most recently, or Pokemon most recently, it was because they announced that Post Malone would be one of their artists in residence, quote-unquote, to celebrate the Pokemon 25th anniversary, even doing a virtual concert. And you and I spoke at the time about how Post Malone is not the most obvious artist you would associate with Pokemon. No. For many different reasons, we won't get into now, but just think of Post Malone, think of Pokemon, you do not think they go together, even still now. Yeah, pretty much. So, coming out of that virtual concert that Post Malone did for the Pokemon 25th anniversary, the Pokemon company announced that there's going to be a Pokemon anniversary album called Pokemon 25, the album that will feature Katy Perry, who's previously been announced to work on and, and produce new music for Pokemon, Post Malone, who we spoke of, and a uh, more recent addition to the lineup is Jay Balvin, uh, who I must say I am not familiar with their, with their work at all, but obviously significant enough for the Pokemon company to uh, assign them up to this project as well. So the three of them, as well as apparently one more quote-unquote surprise artist, will each release a song inspired by the Pokemon franchise, and the release of each song will be joined and accompanied by a music video and, quote, exclusive mer- an exclusive merchandise collection celebrating each artist and Pokemon, end quote. So there's going to be four artists contributing songs, there will be videos, and there will be merch associated with those videos and the Pokemon franchise. Yeah. Which is... Pokemon Company seems to be going a little crazy with this thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're certainly trying to recoup any and all costs, it seems, <laughs> at any opportunity they can. 
I'm kind of waiting for the uh, Pokemon 25th anniversary collector spoons. <laughs> or like trading cards. What? You no. Know, Post Malone poses for trading card photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or even the, uh, you know, perhaps they'll start doing infomercials for the Pokemon 25th anniversary limited edition, you know, Bulbasaur head coin. <laughs> Oh man. You know, yep. s- struck with, you know, whatever amount of however many carats of gold and, you know, limited production, only 10,000 in existence and, you know, operators are standing by. This kind of routine. Yeah. Because this is kind of what it's starting to feel like. Yeah. Uh, well, at, at least it's a little bit more clear with what, you know, the plan is with all these different artists, at least. I mean, up to this point, it was just kind of like they were saying, oh, there's going to be an event happening. Oh, we have Katy Perry and we have Post Malone and it's going to be great. Just just trust us. And we're like, well, what are you talking about? Is this a concert? Is this like a, you know, a, like what, what's happening? So, yeah, at least we know there's a concert, but there's also going to be the album released by the Universal Music Group. And it, yeah. So 14 songs. 14 songs. Uh, it's coming out later this year. Uh, there will be other songs on the album. I mean, there's only, you know, there's the three artists already announced with one more surprise guest. So each of them doing a song, that's four songs. And to round out the other 10 songs on this 14 track album, uh, there will be songs from quote, some of the buzziest new artists from around the world. And these songs will be, re- will be released in quote, very Pokemon ways, end quote. What the hell okay. is that supposed to mean? I literally have no idea. <laughs> what is a very Pokemon way to release a song? Like, will there be like two versions of each song released where one is one color and one's the other somehow? <laughs> and one just inherently gets more views, more likes, more downloads than its, uh, you know, competitor color? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't. No, I don't know what any of this is supposed to mean. Or you have to buy both tracks and then play them at the same time to get the full song. <laughs> oh, because this one doesn't have the, the drum track on it. And this one only has the bass and the vocals. You're like, what is this? The 1960s when they first discovered stereo? Come on. Yes, the, the red album is panned to the left and the blue album's panned to the right. Yeah, it's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> And then you have to play both of them right at the very start as the Pokemon logo flashes on the screen of whatever game. Yes, of the Wizard of Oz, right? (laughs) Yes, and it syncs up perfectly. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, maybe that's the very Pokemon way. I I don't know. I literally have no idea what that means, but... um... Yep, I guess uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I got uh, I got no idea how any of this is going to work out, who the uh, next artist could be for this, or who any of the other ten buzziest new artists from the from around the world might be. Uh, sure, are they literally just doing love ballads to Pikachu or what? I don't know. Um, we'll see. I mean, P- Pikachu does rhyme perfectly with "I love you," so <laughs> sure. <laughs> It writes itself. It does. It really does. So, yeah, we're going to see some 80s power love ballads about Pikachu. <laughs> oh, man. Just like Michael Michael Bolton might be one of the big surprise artists. Yes. I'm how ridiculous, that. How ridiculous would that be? I, I mean, he's one of the buzziest new artists from around the world. <laughs> no doubt. 
Oh man. <laughs> Just I yeah. I was gonna say maybe when Pokemon first came out. No, he wasn't a new artist even then. He was out for like twenty years at that point. <laughs> Let, let me just go on record as saying that I don't believe Michael Bolton was ever a quote-unquote new artist. I think he's just always <laughs> been an artist since time began. Yeah, I, that I I'm gonna I'm gonna concur with that statement. Yeah, there was the Big Bang. Matter was created. So was Michael Bolton. Yeah, and until proven otherwise, that's my working theory. <laughs> Yeah, that's a uh, that's a fair theory. So uh, perhaps he will appear on this. Uh, we don't know. You, your theories out there as are as good and valid as the wild theories we're positing right here as well. Uh, we want to hear your wild theories. Who do you want to see on this Pokemon Twenty Five the album? Uh, email us info at thearcadeshow dot com or hit us up on social media on Twitter and on Facebook at the Arcade Show. Uh, but let's move along. And speaking of money, clearly the Pokemon company is throwing a lot of money at this 25th anniversary, hoping to recoup it. Again, maybe they'll release limited edition collector spoons or collector plates or various other collector tchotchkes. You know, that go along with whatever big anniversary. Uh, but a company that also has a lot of money and is not afraid to flash it around is Epic Games. Uh, when they're not flashing it and just tossing it out uh, hip-hop artist style on their law firms and legal team. They are spending it on purchasing development studios uh, because they are flush with all that sweet, sweet Fortnite cash having in the past bought, I believe most notably, Psionics and the Rocket League. Well, well Rocket League, because they bought Psionics. But yeah. uh, they made another uh, acquisition this week, didn't they? They did. Um, another arguably pretty big um, acquisition, I mean, pretty big in terms of like independent studios. Um, because the, I think the, the hot game right now, I mean, it's, you know, uh, Fortnite kind of still remains one of the, the, the big hot items and Epic has that under control. And the other big hot items that are kind of mainstays, like there's not really a lot of them that are available for purchase, but the one that, you know, seemed the most doable is Fall Guys. Fall Guys is kind of, well, it's not new. Like it's a, it's been out for a little while, but it's arguably it's kind of like, uh, it's almost like where like it, it, I think it's following a similar trajectory to Fortnite in terms of its popularity. So I think obviously, um, Epic thought it was a good idea to kind of get in on that now before it actually reached Fortnite levels and, you know, Mediatonic ended up becoming an Epic unto themselves. It's true. And uh, so Epic Games swooped in and plunked down a uh, big pile of money that that's a, a fairly young and uh, smallish studio like Mediatonic is going to be like, oh, OK, Epic Games wants to buy us. OK. Yeah. Like we do not know the purchase price the, because this is a private transaction with Epic Games being a privately held company. They don't have to disclose shit. No, they don't. And Mediatonic, still a privately held company, who also don't have to disclose shit. So uh, this is a private transaction. Purchase price uh, has not been announced officially. I have not even seen it uh, rumored as uh, a piece of scuttlebutt anywhere. So uh, I'm going to say a couple million. Uh, make of that what we, you will. Maybe that's uh, six figures, seven figures, eight figures, nine figures, ten figures, whatever the case might be. Uh, 
you know, write write the check in your own head. But <laughs> Mediatonic, uh, they call this move a huge win for Fall Guys and claim that joining Epic will, quote, accelerate our plans to improve the game and bring Fall Guys to as many players as possible while continuing to support the community, end quote. And Fall Guys is one of those uh, small titles that's really crept up in, and become kind of the new hotness over the past several months. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's it's sort of following a similar trajectory to uh, Fortnite, really. Except, yeah, it's 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 not the same type of game as Fortnite, but it's uh, I can see the appeal. Like, following very um, a lot of heavy inspiration from things like you know Takeshi's Castle and or Wipeout. Like, for those of you that are kind of older people, like Mike the Legend and myself, that might have remembered back in the early two thousands watching shows like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just it's basically the video game form of that. Yes, with uh, it's bright, it's car- colorful, it's cartoony. It uh, seems to have fairly simple mechanics with a, a simple goal uh, in each uh, play session. So, you know, it makes it fairly accessible. So I, I can see that, you know, very easy to pick up and play. And you can play across uh, demographics, too. It's not, you know, some big hardcore shooter that has a predominant appeal to, uh, you know, males of, of you know, maybe two or three age ranges. But uh, it's accessible to kids as well. So... Yeah, I can see the appeal of it uh, there. Uh, if you're worried about Fall Guys suddenly becoming a totally different game, uh, Mediatonic also goes on to say, quote, uh, each season will continue to expand with new content and features, rounds, and costumes, and they maintain that the game will remain available on Steam and the PlayStation Store, as well as uh, their recent announcements of versions coming to Switch and Xbox uh, will still go ahead as planned for later this summer. And if you're Epic Games, of course, you're still going to allow that because... Yeah, you want the game you just purchased out on as many platforms as possible. Yeah. And uh, Mediatonic did go on to say that they uh, plan to bring in some of the features that have been seen in titles like Fortnite and Rocket League. They're now sibling companies in over to Fall Guys, such as account systems, crossplay, and squad versus squad modes. Now, we don't know if there's also going to be a free-to-play mode coming to Fall Guys, you know, following the Fortnite model. Yeah. But we'll see. Uh that could be something down the line or maybe they maybe they just maintain status quo for the time being. Who knows? But uh yeah, Mediatonic and the Fall Guys people now under the Epic Games umbrella and kudos to them for uh getting a nice payday out of things. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it wasn't a just a crap payday and now they're like the bag men for this whole Apple situation that Epic is now in, <laughs> which would suck. Yes, at the very least, hopefully they got themselves a nice catered lunch. Yeah, hopefully. Yes. For, you know what? For an entire week. Yeah. A week's worth of catered lunches, good. There you go. And the week after that, you you know, business as usual. you got to bring your ham sandwich from home, but... Yeah, and you, make sure it's clearly labeled in the fridge, you know. Yes, the fridge that is still on the fritz and doesn't entirely, you know, cool things all the way. Yeah, and it hasn't been cleaned in a few weeks, so uh careful. <laughs> so make sure it's properly wrapped and sealed. Yeah. Uh But one more, you know, meaty news item we'll get to this week kind of ties into what we spoke about uh, off the top of last uh, program with the uh, abundance and just the bounty of content these days. Sony announcing this week that they are going to be removing 
come this summer, removing uh, video uh, rentals and video purchases from the PlayStation Store. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've said mo- many, many times on this program, there's no shortage of places to get content. And in many ways, there's like a lot of different duplication happening on the internet with some of these um, on-demand and or streaming services. I mean, with at least in Canada, like you can add, for example, there's a thing called the stars package, which I think is basically like a few different networks worth of content that you can add to your crave bundle. Or you can also, if you have um, Amazon prime, you can add it there, but in doing so, like you could potentially accidentally buy it in both places. I mean, you probably won't if you're paying attention to what you have, but you could now end up with the same content in both different places and you're paying for it in two different places. And frankly, like a lot of stuff, just if you have two or three of these streaming services, chances are you're going to be satisfied for a while anyways for stuff to watch. So, you know, that kind of kills the traditional streaming or the traditional rental model, which is kind of what, you know, the PlayStation store was based off of for quite some time now. And since there is no PlayStation streaming video service, it's literally been like, oh, if you want to watch this movie, you have to buy this movie or rent this movie for a couple of days, which is like fine, but I don't think I need to buy it or rent it here because it's available on the streaming service, which I'm already paying for. So I'll just watch it there. Thanks. And as a result, yeah, Sony uh, removing those uh, that feature from the PlayStation Store for rentals, for purchases, uh, and literally chalking it up to what you said uh, in a uh, blog post post to blog post uh, put up on the official Sony blog. Sony Interactive Entertainment's video head Vanessa Lee said the decision was driven by shifts in the market, driven by the rising popularity of things like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, uh, saying officially, "quote At SIE, we strive to provide the best entertainment experience for PlayStation fans, and that means evolving our offerings as customer chain." Customer need, as customers need change, uh, we've been we've seen tremendous growth from PlayStation fans using the subscription-based and ad-based entertainment streaming services on our consoles. With this shift in customer behavior, we have decided to no longer offer movie and TV purchases and rentals through PlayStation Store as of August thirty-first, twenty twenty-one. End quote. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess. You know, on that note, it's, you know, makes sense. It's like, well, they have all the data of they see what apps people are opening. You know, it's probably just like a licensing headache for them to keep some of this stuff going anyways. And like, it must get to a certain point where is it really worth renewing licenses for TV shows and stuff if we know that people aren't really watching them on our platform and they're instead opening up their Prime or Netflix or whatever apps? Yeah, and I'm sure they can see too just the amount of uh, transactions, downloads, and actual purchases and rentals made of videos through the PlayStation Store has likely been on a steady decline over the past five to seven years. Yeah. And so with that point, I mean, I can see it just making more sense to just kibosh it, and that's exactly what they are doing again as of August 31st. Now, that being said, if you have made a purchase or some kind of well, rental is time limited, so I'll just stick with if you have made a video purchase uh, through the PlayStation Store, 
you're fine. That is still yours. It's not going to go away. Uh, but after August 31st, you will not be able to do any of that. So if there's really something you want and only can find on the PlayStation Store, make that uh, purchase now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, do it before you forget it, and then it's gone. And maybe it's... I mean, it seems really unlikely that there would be something on the PlayStation Store that you cannot find elsewhere between uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, uh, Crave here in Canada, uh, Disney+. Plus. Disney Plus here in Canada just adding the the Star package as well, which has a whole lot of Fox content that doesn't really fit, fit under any other banner, um, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, probably you all have your own video libraries and DVD collections as well. So, again, there's a lot of content these days. Yeah. Having said that, though, I mean, if you have made additional purchases or if you have existing purchases, there's, they'll still be available infinitely to you. So, like... Don't worry about that part of things. Like, if you have purchased something, you'll still be able to get it back, even like what I'm assuming is going to be years after, you know, they've stopped the purchasing ability. Like, if if you bought, you know, whatever movie through the PlayStation Store, yeah, it's not going to be lost to you forever just because this whole service is now no longer a thing. You'll always be able to download it. So that's the part that they're assuring. Yes, you'll always be able to download it as long as there's still a PlayStation network. Yeah, exactly. And far as I can tell, there's going to be one for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Un- unless Apple steps in or some other much larger tech company bu- steps in and buys Sony, I don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah. Call me crazy. But then again, I mean, who knows? Maybe a big company just wants to get even bigger and buy one of its uh, slightly smaller underlings. So... Who knows? Who knows? The big tech uh, companies, the big fang stocks have way too much money, so they can do anything. Yeah, exactly. But that being said, I mean, you're probably watching some movies uh, or, you know, video programming that, uh, you know, I can understand if you've seen or, or you know, watched before. You know, it's always good to get reacquainted with an old title that uh, you enjoy and you know you enjoy. You know, just hit those nostalgia nostalgic buttons every so often that's a good thing to do through your various services and also something we like to do here on the arcade where we take some time at the end of each program to hit those nostalgic buttons in something we call the blast from the past if you're new to this program it's where we take a few minutes to fetch milestone anniversaries of things that could be movies tv shows uh albums video games uh things that we have encountered pieces of media we have encountered through the years that we think deserve talking about as they celebrate some sort of milestone anniversary. And we have three items in the Blast from the Past this week. Two of them are of the same medium. One of them is not of the same medium. One of them very much stands out compared to the others. Uh, where would you like to uh, start on this week's edition of the Blast from the Past? We can probably go newest to oldest, I think. Well, all right then. The newest item that we are going to talk about will take us uh, fairly recently. Uh, it's going back to March 6th of 2006, and this is a piece of media that's an album, back when people still bought whole albums. So you're saying fairly recently, but that is 15 years ago. It's the lie I tell myself so I don't feel so old. <laughs> yes. So fairly recently, just a, just a quick 15 years ago, this album came out. 
just a just a pinch of time ago, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh so 15 years ago, March 6, 2006, uh this is an album again from the quaint days when people still went to physical stores and bought CDs, compact discs as they were called back then. Uh, yes. So they could play them in their car, uh, as they were driving, perhaps in their stereo system back home, whatever the case may have been. Uh, but this is an album done by, uh, actually a kind of a big name from a different time. And you think 15 years is a long time. This is an album that came out 22 years after the artist's, uh, basically previous album. So what we are talking about now is David Gilmore's On an Island. Yeah, it was his third, his third solo album. I mean, in case the name doesn't ring a bell to you, David Gilmore is the guitarist slash lead singer of Pink Floyd, or was the guitarist slash lead singer of Pink Floyd while Pink Floyd was still a thing. Um, but you know, on the side of Pink Floyd, all the people in Pink Floyd had done, you know, solo things in one way, shape or form. Um, but yes, On an Island was his third studio album released by himself as just a David Gilmore solo album with, as you said, the previous one being about face in 1984 and the one before then being, uh, just his solo, his first self-titled album back in 1978, just titled David Gilmore. Um, but yeah. So he uh, uh, wasn't really taking a lot of time for his, for himself or his solo albums. No, but to be fair, I mean, when you are already the voice and guitar, sound of Pink Floyd, you don't really need to release a solo album, I guess, right? I mean, that's true. You've got uh, Pink Floyd at your disposal, and it is, I mean, Pink Floyd initially was, you know, known as being David Gilmore and Roger Waters, but after Roger Waters left, yeah, it was very much just a David Gilmore band anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you you have, you know, Richard Wright, the, the late Richard Wright and Nick Mason in there as well, but... I mean, let, let's be real. The, the creative forces of Pink Floyd after Sid Barrett left were David Gilmore and Roger Waters. Then after Roger Waters left, you're right. Gilmore became the guy. Exactly. So, so, so it's just on that note on an island. It's, you, you know what to expect. If you like Pink Floyd, you probably like this album. I mean, if you've never heard it before, if you know what David Gilmore sounds like, that's what this album sounds like. True. Uh, if you enjoy some of the uh, more melodic uh, bits of uh, Pink Floyd's, I guess, last, what, last half of their discography. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, the first half would have been with Sid Barrett and Roger Waters, and then... Well, the first album was with Sid Barrett. I believe he, yes. he he kind of, like, left after then. But, like, they they were still, you know, in that psychedelic phase for a little bit. And then they, you know, were kind of experimental for a while, until I would say probably like animals is when they kind of like started to sound like the Pink Floyd that we all know, you know, animals, wish you were here, dark side of the moon, metal, um, the wall. <laughs> that's sort of like the brunt of like what we all kind of know as like, oh, that's what Pink Floyd sounds like. So that, that type of sound, like, you know, the, the mellow, um, well, not mellow, but like, you know, kind of like more dreamier kind of airy, like prog rock stylings that, you know, they've, they kind of like perfected in those several albums. And it's just all distilled into an album of its, 
own form, it's a very ambient, a very, a very mellow, as you said, very calming album. And I mean, it's not for everyone. This is an album, you know, you have to be in a certain mood to listen to it. But this is an album, say, of the past 10 plus years. This is uh, one of the ones I kind of keep coming back to every so often for a very specific instance and very specific reason. As I've spoken on uh, this program before, I fly and travel or did fly, did travel for work, you know, in the before times. I did flying and traveling for work related reasons. And if I was just kind of on a plane by myself, maybe, you know, it's early in the morning and I'm just not really feeling watching something. I just want to close my eyes or I'm just, I've run out of content to watch or there's nothing grabbing me on the in-flight entertainment system that I want to, you know, uh, while away the time with. This is the album I will put on. If I need just to calm down and relax and just want to mellow out and chill for the, uh, you know, 40, 50 minutes of this album or 40 for the good next 40, 50 minutes, I put on this album and you're totally calm. Totally chill, totally relaxed, and this is my go-to album for when I needed to just uh, just kind of calm down on a plane. Yeah, I could see that. It's absolutely perfect for it. And let me tell you, I did some uh, some trial and error, and uh, the first couple of albums I tried were Beach Boys, Brian Wilson albums, and those are way too busy. Yeah, they're they're also. Those albums would often have like an element of maybe something that is a little bit off kilter or uneasy to them. Like even for the happy stuff, like you hear like a happy song, but it's never fully happy. (laughs) You know, there's, there is an element of like sadness throughout everything that Brian Wilson kind of does, I think. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Like it's, it's not pure unbridled joy. Yeah, well, not that this album is pure and bridal joy either, but it's oh. very calming and very just kind of like nice, nice and even and very like nothing jumps out like and is aggressive and is demanding too much of your attention all at once. Yeah, it's not a wall of sound like a Brian Wilson or, or Beach Boys album is, which let me tell you, when it's 8 a.m. and you're on a plane and you just, you know, aren't feeling it at the moment and just want to close your eyes and relax for a bit and maybe have, you know, some music in the background to help lull you to sleep. Beach Boys and Brian Wilson are the absolute, or some of the worst albums to choose for that. Yeah. Which sounds counterintuitive, but let me tell you, the wall of sound does uh, not help you. Calm down. <laughs> exactly. So David Gilmour on an island from 2006. If you need to relax, if you need to chill out, if you uh, perhaps have some adult treats with you and just need something to uh, help you uh, melt into the couch, it's a good album for that. But uh, should we move on to the other album we have to talk about this week? Yeah, we could go albums and then we'll just talk about the uh, the other thing that's not an album. Indeed. So the other album we're talking about will take us back to March 3rd of 1986. And as we kind of spoke up uh, there with David Gilmore's On an Island and really, uh, really pushed home the fact that it's a very chill, very mellow album, this title we are speaking about is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, um, to many people, I think myself included, uh, this is what people consider to be this band's finest hour, um, full of like sprawling arrangements and definitely has no shortage of their early period signature aggression. This is Metallica's Master of Puppets and it is 35 years old now. It sure is. And, uh, this, I believe this was what the, the last of their first five, first four albums. 
No, this is their third oh, album. third, sorry. Yes, so this, this was their third album. The last album that featured their late great bass player, Cliff Burton, um, before, you know, tragedy struck and a bus accident happened and Cliff was unfortunately killed, but, uh, yeah, um, this is Metallica firing on all cylinders in their early days, you know, when they were still a band that had, you know, a chip on their shoulder and had to, everything to prove to the world. Um, really maybe their most compositionally adventurous album, uh, thematically, it really cemented what Metallica was about as a band. And yeah, it's just a solid album from start to finish. And I mean, Metallica, you know, was at that time part of what they called the big four of thrash, of thrash metal, you know, being like the big four thrash metal bands being Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax. But arguably Master of Puppets, I would say is maybe the most accessible out of all of them while still maintaining um, that degree of, you know, authenticity as to what it is. Yes, it still has that straight ahead, uh, energy, that, that almost anger fueled, uh, train, uh, that is moving along the tracks in this album. But yet it has some, has some greater style and refinement to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, they, they go on many different journeys, even within the song, the title song itself, Master of Puppets. It, you know, it's an eight minute journey, really, like, and that's not the only eight minute plus song on the album. So, I mean, they get into weird prog- like progressive rock territory while not really being considered a progressive rock band. It's very strange, but also very interesting. And yet somehow on this album, they still make it all work. Yeah, exactly. Which is wild and crazy, uh, especially considering in the heyday of thrash metal in the eighties, uh, eight minute songs were just unheard of. Well, no, like if you consider, um, like, for example, part of the other big four, Slayer, the album they released kind of around the same time was Angel of, uh, sorry, Rain and Blood, which had, you know, I think Angel of Death would have been maybe one of the longest songs on that album. And it's just shy of five minutes. And the rest of the songs on that album being, you know, two, three minute songs, the whole album being, I think, 28 minutes. Master of Puppets, 54 minutes. Like, like there's only, well, if you look at the lengths of all the songs, batteries over five, master of puppets is eight and a half. The thing that should not be is six and a half. Welcome home sanitarium, six and a half. Disposable heroes, almost eight and a half. Leper Messiah, five and a half. Orion, also eight and a half. Damage Incorporated, five and a half. So like the short songs on this album are longer than the longest song on Rain and Blood. So yeah, they were experimenting with long form songs based storytelling. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm maybe a little bit biased. I am a big fan of this album. So I would say there's no bad songs in this album. Like to me, like there's, like this is one of those no skip albums, you know, like other albums, like even other Metallica albums, like even other early Metallica albums, you could say, eh, this song feels like a skip, but this song, but this album doesn't really feel like it has any skips. That's uh, an impressive uh, mark to achieve for an album. Yeah. Especially when you're into eight minute, you know, territory of eight minute long songs. 
Yeah. You know, multiple times too over the course of the album. But yeah, well, there's three songs over eight minutes on this album, so. And it still is able to maintain that energy level throughout those songs, too. And yes, the songs will go in, uh, you know, some different directions, take you on journeys through them, but there's still, still that energy that really is inherent to thrash metal that Metallica had through their first many albums that still continues on, even though in those eight minute journeys. Yeah. Which is an impressive feat. So, uh, yeah, 35 years old, a, uh, number that's, uh, uh, hard to ignore. That's up there in age, age ranges, uh, Master of Puppets. When they were still spry young men. <laughs> yes, 35 years ago. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but let's move on to our last item that we're going to talk about and FET this week. It is not an album, uh, surprise, surprise, but as you mentioned in that, uh, prior to talking about Metallica and Master of Puppets, it is, uh, one item that kind of stands on its own. It is, uh, uh, the cheese in the dell, if you will, of this week's Blast from the Past. It is a video game that came out in North America on March 5th, 2001 for the Nintendo 64. And even now, 20 years after its release, it still is very much an oddity for the time it was released. It still doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, looking back on it now, but it's still a title that exists and I don't think it can ever really be duplicated. We are talking right now about Conqueror's Bad Fur Day from the N64. Yeah. <clears throat> this is a, this is a game that I do own, complete in box and everything, not to brag or anything, but I remember seeing a trailer for it and thinking, that's insane. I remember renting it, playing it, saying, wow, this is insane. And then I bought it as a result and yeah, played quite a bit of it. Um, it's, yeah, I would say it's quite an oddity to put it very lightly. Uh, I, I, I'll admit that, you know, even at the time and even now, I don't really know the full, like how rare got from point A to point B, because as far as I know, they made this character conquer for a game that was on the Game Boy Color called Conquer's Pocket Tales. Um, it was, you know, like I said, a Game Boy Color game. It was supposed to tell the story of this, you know, cutesy cartoon squirrel named Conquer the Squirrel as he was, you know, retrieving his stolen birthday presents and rescues his girlfriend, Barry, who had been kidnapped by an evil acorn, blah, blah, blah. Cutesy story, you know, very kind of forgettable, you know, but yeah, it was rare. So, you know, there was a level of quality to it, but it was... Nothing super um, mind-blowing. So when they I, – I don't know what happened between point A to point Z, but Conker's Bad Fur Day is basically – I don't know if it's meant to be like the aftermath of like after he won that game and partied a little bit too hard, but it's basically – it's a hangover – and it's out of control, and it was – I would say it kind of stands on its own as a game that I haven't seen anything quite like it in the last 20 years since it came out in what it is. And what I mean by that is it's a—it's very much a rare 
3D platformer of the day, like they released, like it wasn't the first rare 3D platformer. I mean, it was no Banjo-Kazooie, like, but it was put out by the same people that did Banjo-Kazooie and the people that, you know, most famously were known for all of the Donkey Kong Country games and Donkey Kong 64, which would have been the game that came out on the same platform around the same time. So we have established Rare at this point as, you know, relatively family-friendly with the exception of, you know, Perfect Dark, which are – what was the other one that they did, That the space Uh, one? uh, Jet Force Gemini. Yeah, Jet Force Gemini. So relatively E-rated games, maybe dipping into, you know, maybe some teen-type themes at most, but generally pretty squeaky clean, and I think – there must have been some pent up, like something, some sort of pent up energy amongst the team because this game came out with a hard M rating with a big advisory on the front of the box saying this game is not for anyone under the age of 17. Tons of drinking, smoking, sexual, scatological references, scatological references inside the game. And it's bananas. It's, it's the, it's the flip side of all of those other cutesy rare games. And I've never seen a company like this do something like this since rare did it back 20 years ago. What further adds to the, the dissonance, the incongruity of Conqueror's Bad Fur Day is that it came out on a Nintendo platform. Nintendo at the time very much priding itself on being a family friendly company family-focused company. Yeah. And this game, as you said, it's a hard M. Yeah. Like, as hard as an M uh, rating as a game could get in 2001. Now, of course, titles in the, you know, more recent times have just pushed that further, you know, enhanced score, enhanced violence, uh, and whatever else, you know, more uh, realistic-looking blood and, and splatter effects, like the Mortal Kombat games or a Call of Duty game, that's fine. But this one was crude it was crass it um it, it was antithetical to everything nintendo stood for at the time and yet it came out on the n64 and is one of those games that you think of perhaps most prominently when thinking back to the n64 era yeah because it was so weird it's in comparison to everything else it was so weird like the gameplay was pretty much uh, you know a port, almost straight up a, a copy of what you saw in Donkey Kong 64, Banjo-Kazooie, things of that nature. But the the material, the storyline, the cutscenes, the cutscenes especially, were really what made it stand out. The cutscenes uh, in this game were parodying very popular movies at the time, such as Saving Private Ryan and also The Matrix. Yeah, to the point where, like... Yeah, you, you act out some of these scenes and Alien, believe it or not. That's right too. I forgot about Alien. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, <laughs> oh, and actually the, the opening scene parodies a Clockwork Orange. So like, they're not, you're not using like, like particularly straight ahead references that kids are going to get at all. And I think that's the other thing to kind of note here. Like, it's not just, filthy humor and filthy jokes and stuff like i think part of the thing that makes it not for children is because they just wouldn't understand some of it 
That's true, especially something like a, a reference to Clockwork Orange, which came out in the 70s and really is not suitable for children. No, not at all. In, in whatever era, whatever decade, not suitable for children. Yeah. And, and yet Conker as the character, as you mentioned, started off life as this, you know, squeaky clean, very cutesy red squirrel wearing a jacket that was in the Game Boy game, was also in Diddy Kong Racing as a selectable character, and w- which was a very bright, very, also a rare game, and very bright, very cutesy, very, very over-the-top cartoonishness, um, and almost sickly sweet with how cutesy and colorful it was as a game. And yet there's this one, which just completely is the opposite side of the coin. Like, it's Conqueror's gone off the deep end. And I think what storyline-wise, Conqueror is trying to recount what happened after a night of drinking with the boys. Yeah. yeah and, like, you know, what happened after they, like, stormed the beach, and that's when it goes into the uh, the parody of Saving Private Ryan, parody slash homage to Saving Pri- Private Ryan, and, you know is in whatever battle with his friends and then goes on a night of drinking and then has to get back home to his girlfriend and has a wild adventure along the way and also encounters well, some really inappropriate enemies too. Well, the saving Ri- private Ryan part happened far later in the game. Oh, sorry. So it was, sorry. it was, it was, it was post, um, like it was all in sort of the aftermath after things are discovered, like not to spoil anything. Like I don't actually know if this game is still worth playing, if it's held up well, like I, Literally haven't played it in quite some time. One of these days, you know, if once I, <laughs> if I decide to further put off playing Death Stranding, I may dust off the old N64 and see if I can play this game again. Perhaps. We'll see. Uh, indeed. But you still have it in your collection and that's uh, the first step towards being able to play it again. Absolutely. The, or if I didn't, you know, there's emulators and stuff, which would be relatively easy to get going as well. Of course. But uh it's just a wild experience. Now, if you're trying to find this in the modern day times, uh such as now, and add it to your collection, be advised, it's a hard game to find, and if you do find it, you're paying a pretty penny. Yeah. It uh it is held by people who know what they have and are asking for prices accordingly that perhaps are outside your your desired range of what you want to pay for it, and that's okay. Uh but it is just a a uh, strange, weird title that uh, I don't know if there's been a, uh, a first party or even second. Well, certainly not first party, but I don't know if there's even been a second party title uh, on a Nintendo platform that's been as hard in our rating as Conker's Bad Fur Day was. Yeah, I can't really think of any. And that's really what makes it stand out even you know now, 20 years hence, that it was just so bizarre for the time and still so bizarre because... Yeah, because of the humor, because of the language, it's crude, it's, uh, there's profanity, and, uh, yeah, it's just a wild, wild experience that, I mean, looking back on it now, how did it ever get made and passed, uh, Nintendo's, uh, checks and balances? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if, I mean, it seems like the subject of a documentary that should be made. Yeah, I, <laughs> That would be like that. That seems to me like the kind of thing that like Kickstarter is made for. Like, get the whole team back together and talk about it. You could you could build an hour long documentary out of that. I'm sure. Oh yes, absolutely. So, uh, if you have all the answers to how Conquer's Bad Fur Day uh, went from uh, a cutesy cartoon platformer to the 
hard M rating experience it ended up becoming on the N64. We want to hear from you, as well as uh, if you have questions or comments about anything else spoken of on this program, you can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up through social media. We're on both Twitter and Facebook at The Arcade Show, as we are now firmly wrapping things up for this edition of the program. And we thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to this program and have it delivered straight to your digital doorstep. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play Podcast. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And I think that about nicely wraps us up for this program and this week. So uh, I think all that's really left to be said is until next time, good night. Good night. <laughs>